1: I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better.
2: I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories
3: about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious.
0: Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org.
4: Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
0: I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is another special Cider Sessions edition. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We're broadcasting from Jimmy's number 43. This show will air sometime in the fall of 2015. Beer Sessions Radio is brought to you by Union Beer Distributors, supplier of world-class ales and ciders. Joining with me are Gay and Kay from United States of Cider and at Hello Cider on Twitter. Thanks, guys. Thanks for putting hey, the show Jimmy. together. They do a Thank great you. job. It seems like ever since Wasail opened on Lower East Side... K&K are bringing in different cider people uh, every week, so it's kind of been a treat, and we're putting together this, this whole new series. So gentlemen, just go through and quickly introduce yourself, your names, and, and the cideries you work for, because
1: there's two different cider guys here. So, My name is Tim Prendergast. I'm here with Ancho.
5: Uh, I'm Sam. I'm also here with Ancho. We're a small cidery and restaurant that's open in Washington, D.C. at the end of the year.
3: I'm Cooper Sheehan with Ancho as well. And Kyle Millstone.
2: Copham in Maryland.
6: Yep, Millslone in Maryland.
2: So, first, so you guys are here for something at Wasale. Is that what brought you to New York?
6: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I had a cider dinner last night, and then we're doing our uh, collaborative dinner, which is going to be with Stillwater and Oxbow Brewing. We did uh, collaborations with both of them, and it's going to be a cool kind of melding of cider culture and beer culture.
2: So, w- what is it about Wasale? I mean, it seems that every week some great cider people are coming into town now.
6: Well, sales um, kind of a beacon of light and hope for all things cider. I mean, I do. I bend over backwards for them as I will for Ancho when they open because anyone that's preaching the gospel of real cider is, you know, just building a market that just is slowly growing. But you know, more people that kind of are evangelizing it, the better.
2: Great, man. So I, I know you guys are at Millstone.
6: we we've, we carry some of your product at Jimmy's Number Forty Three. Mm-hmm. Tell us about about how you guys got started. So it started with me and my father, uh, we founded the company about 2011, started producing in 2012. Uh, my father used to be a winemaker, went to UC Davis for a bit of culture and winemaking. Uh, was a winemaker in Maryland, Virginia during the 80s and 90s. I came from a completely different spectrum. I went to school for business, um, did some home brewing, but not really involved with much cider making. In fact, I would say, uh, didn't get into cider making because I like cider. I got into cider making because I liked what was coming out of Europe, uh, flavor-wise, um. I remember me and my father sat down. He had this old 18th century gristmill that he renovated and, you know, was working on rehabbing it for about 10 years. Hadn't done anything with it. Um, so we, and I was like, you know, we should do something uh, that kind of fits the history of the place. Let's do cider. It's a fast-growing market, and you know, my business side kicking in. But past the business background, you know, we've been making rustic-style hard cider for the past three and a half years, and since there wasn't much written on it, um, we're kind of re, kind of writing the book as we go through. We started very simply. Everything we did was very much in the kind of natural style. Uh, we don't use sulfites. We don't pasteurize. Everything we do is oak barrel fermented, oak barrel aged, generally six to eight months. It's aging on top of the leaves the entire time. Um, so just this funky, rustic cider, very similar to what was being made 200 years ago.
2: That's great, man. Thanks for coming on the show. So, gentlemen from Ancho, tell us a little about what your project is and... Uh while you're here with Millstone?
5: <coughs> uh, we all come from beer backgrounds in Washington, D.C., but we discovered a really strong interest in cider a couple years ago through trying Kyle's products and also some of the international stuff that he had referenced. Um, and so we are hoping to open at the end of the year as a restaurant, uh, first and foremost, uh, but we're also going to produce a small amount of cider. We're going to ask our good friend Kyle for some help in making sure that it comes out right. Um, but beyond being a cidery, we're going to be the, um, I think, preeminent place to drink and buy cider in Washington, D.C. So what's the first cider that we're tasting? The first cider is, uh, I think that we're actually Bassa drinking Haun. the other. Yeah. Um, we're drinking uh, Basa Haun, uh, which is from a French bass producer. Uh, Cooper and I actually were just there uh, last month. Um, in our opinion, this is our favorite international cider, I think, or producer at least. Yeah. Um, this is their very dry product. We also have Basse which is the female version. Um, also note that Ancho, uh, our name, is, comes from the same story as Basa Haun. Um, both are the, the Basque wild man, kind of similar to Bigfoot. Um, and this is his lady, Basandere. So this producer every year takes, I believe it's 22 apples that they've um, identified themselves and cultivated. Um, and then they sort them into more or less masculine and feminine flavor profiles. And every year they make these two products. Um, so we're drinking uh, Basa which is the, the very dry version. Um, this is maybe off-dry, but it has more sweetness to it, Bachander. Um, but I think they're really fantastic ciders. Do you want to talk a little bit about the flavor?
1: Um, it's interesting when we go through and try both of them that the the Bassau that we're trying, they do actually bottle with a little bit of sugar. I think there's 10 grams per liter in it, and the Bachander has twice the amount of sugar in it. So it's cool to be able to see. They both end up coming off not too sweet. It's nice to be able to contrast both of those. Um, the thing that I like a lot about these ciders that I think not a lot of cider, specifically not a lot of American cider, brings to the table is the tannin character to it. It has really nice tannin to it, which gives it structure, um, it lengthens the finish out. I really love the, the tannin quality, and I like the Bosh and a little bit more, that's my favorite, because it's the balance between tannin and sweetness that is like a really nice push and pull between one another. Um, these are just fantastic products, I, I could drink these all the time. There's
2: a little bit of smokiness to it. Yep. Yeah. Where does that come from?
1: That can come from the apples themselves it's, or from fermentation, from wild yeast fermentation. Oftentimes the wild yeast will kick out uh, a little bit of uh, more of a phenolic character uh, and that can range from um, a little bit of like a clove flavor all the way to like smokiness or if it gets a little out of control it comes up coming like like a band-aid sort of aroma to it. Um, but it's nice when you get that subtle smokiness to it, and I find that in Spanish cider, uh, not infrequently, uh, we're drinking a dessert cider from the cert- Asturias the other day that also had that really nice, pleasant smokiness to it. So,
2: making a, a cider place in DC. So, there, there, is there no other real center for cider in DC? in the first not yet. place?
3: There, there are several places that have kind of, uh, you know, picked up. They might have two on draft at one time, and that's that's typically the most you'll see. Um, Lots of bottle selections usually, but only large formats, so only the uh, people that already kind of know what they're looking for are ordering things like that. It's uh, it's kind of our, our duty to try and expand people's uh, sort of knowledge of cider in general to, by allowing people to try small quantities of tons of different things to find out what they like.
2: So D.C. is a different place. I know regu- regulation-wise, I know that you can... Sell any beer in DC that's licensed in the United States. You know, unlike certain states, you have to go state by state. What's it like f- for you to import or, or, or sell ciders in, in DC? Is it, is it kind of an open?
5: It will be market? a fun opportunity for us. I mean, we Tim and I at um, our old job at Meridian Pint, where we sold a lot of beer, we used to, um, I think we made kind of a name for ourselves by bringing beer, out of market beer in. Um, but essentially, if, if something's not available through distribution, we can bring it in ourselves. We have to register it and pay tax. Um, but it's. I'm not really sure what the intention of the law was originally, but the benefit now for, for the beverage scene is that we have a really um, diverse You semester. just
1: have to go through the federal. You don't have to deal with any additional state or We have
2: to pay a small
0: district.
1: tax in D.C. I mean, you're, su- you're supposed to go register the product, say that you're bringing it in, and pay for beer. It's... $2.79 per barrel so for every every keg it's like a $1.30 they have to pay on it you know it's not a money maker for them it's mostly just the pain of having to register it but as long as another distributor doesn't carry it or warehouse it in DC then it's legal to bring it in which is fantastic for our beverage scene
0: that's like an amazing opportunity for you to take really small producers from all over the country yeah and-
4: give them a showcase that they're not going to have You know, we could else. just
1: bring a case in of something. If we stopped at a, a winery or cider producer on the way back, you know, we just uh, got yeah. a case of something that we wanted. We could bring it in and sell it. It's a fantastic luxury to be able to have. Okay. Everyone it comes to D.C. and they're drooling over the fact that, that we can do that.
5: A lot, of the, a lot of the small producers are afraid to enter into contracts, um, you know, right off the bat. And so a lot of times that limits what comes into a city and... Um, I'm a big proponent of going through distribution when you can, but one of the beautiful things is that you can take a small producer that's not sure about the market, not sure about the distributors, and they can come in and sell a limited amount of product in a venue that they really like, and then they can work out the relationships with with distributors and come in on a more permanent basis. And so we get, we'll get to do that with cider for sure.
2: Let me ask you, so the rest of the DC scene, so
5: you worked at Meridian Pint. I worked at Church Key, Meridian Pine, Pizzeria, Paradiso, Smoke and Barrel. Uh, Cooper's currently at Meridian Pine and Tim uh, ran the program with me at Meridian Pine and is now the beverage director at Boundary Road. So between the, the three of us, we've seen the, the DC beer scene for sure.
2: Cool. And then uh, what's the tie-in with uh, Kyle here? So think, talk about ciders in that area.
1: So I think we've been friends with Kyle for a while, uh, for sure. I want to say three, three years ago or four, three yeah. three and a half years ago. When we first ago. entered
6: the market, I think uh, Greg Jasker introduced me to you guys, um, and yeah, ever since then, we just, Sam's always had a huge interest. I think, for instance, since I'd known him, he wanted to start a cider bar, um, so I think it took a little while, but now his dream's coming to fruition. So he's always had a keen interest in interesting things going on in the scene, which has kind of fostered our friendship, I think.
2: Hey, Gay and Kay, are there a, 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 a we know about some of the Virginia cider scene. Is, is there much else going on in Maryland, cider-wise?
6: Not I a ton. I think you're you're one
0: of the the first. Are there other small ones? There's two up other
6: ones in others? Maryland: Distillery um, Lane, which has its own orchard, and then oh God, what's the other one? I'm blanking. Out oh, there.
3: the something Shoal. Yeah,
6: Great or, Shoals. Great they do like fizzy cider and. Champagnes and stuff uh-huh. like that. Nothing nothing too interesting stylistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Virginia has a huge burgeoning scene. I think they have like 13, 14 different cider producers. Cider. They have oh, yeah. More and more opening up. So, I mean, and at the same time, though, what we're doing in Maryland is, I think, very different than what almost any cider maker is doing. You're seeing more ciders doing this kind of rustic style up in New York, especially as I come up to what's say I like to try some of these uh, new uh, rustic ciders popping up. But, I mean, I'm a huge proponent of more and more cideries doing this because, unfortunately for me, when you're doing apple-centric cideries, you are generally using sulfites and champagne yeast, yes, they're interesting, but there's, I don't think there's the same amount of variation for varietals in uh, apples as there is for grapes, and it's just a massive difference in grapes. In apple varieties it can be very different, but if you're using sulfites, using champagne yeast, you're just preserving the apple varietal. As if that's the only thing that's being produced by you know, 200 makers in America, you know, they'll, you'll reach a limit on what flavors you can kind of really portray. To kind of go to the next step and say, well, what does our area taste like? Um, and start using the native yeast in your area. We've noticed uh, great success not only fermenting with the native yeast, but getting it from organic orchards so they're not using pesticides or herbicides and killing off that microflora that's there. Um, we just brought our forage cider down for the, uh, the tasting with the sale. And just really cool, interesting, like, uh, crushed flowers and um, just, like, this blue cheesiness that came along with it. That's just beautiful and indicative of the area that we we live in. Hopefully, that'll kind of happen. So uh, I was sitting with the new cider maker, or one of the new cider makers for Angry Orchard yesterday, and he was like, you know, it'd be great if there was, like, you know, a Maine style of cider, and a Virginia style of cider, and a Maryland style of cider, and a Washington State style of cider. And... Hopefully that's where the cider market's evolving to. Well,
0: you know, John Bunker, when we talked to him the other day, and he gave a talk at Wausau as well, he really does feel that there are emerging cider styles throughout the country here, and he said, he very specifically said, you know,
4: terroir is important, and styles are starting to emerge, and that it's very exciting.
5: Uh,
1: yeah. I think the apples have it, and they've known it all along, and it's just us humans that are figuring it out. Exactly, you know, getting to know it and, and discern it. But I think it's there. It's just
5: terroir. I mean, yeah, I say just terroir. I know that's like a little sacrilege, but yeah. terroir we, is. we've seen already everything. a difference
2: between Finger Lakes cider producers, Virginia, yeah. kind of California. everywhere that's having a, a, a cider week. Seems to definitely have their own styles based on climate.
6: The indigenous
0: apples, and just you know. how the fruit is
6: grown in that specific region. So true. I mean, defining styles right now in cider is an extremely difficult task, and you know I have a, a rough matrix of how to, of kind of what's evolving. But you know one of the nice things is there doesn't need to be any defined styles right now. We're all just discovering cider across America. All the producers they're saying, where do we wait? How far can we push it? What before can we it's do? Not cider anymore. Yeah, before it's not cider. cider anymore. Uh, we we definitely push our cider. Pretty darn far, and you know, like one of my projects, I want to make a sherry cider where I take ice cider, get up to about 15% ABV, then put a floor over it, so I make a traditional fino style with the cap and everything. Why? Because why not? You know, That's just, let's just let's see what what cider can do. So
2: you guys, you got some worthy uh, companions over. I'm looking at you. So you got Tim, Sam, and Cooper from Ancho, and I'm looking at you guys. Deep thinkers here. Meridian Pine. You guys are like so the the core of like DC beer. Kind of amazed, impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what you are going to be when you walked in. So is yeah, one of the fun things. Let's let's have more of this one. I actually say I'm, I'm partial to the male. Yeah, for the sure. Boss of just... I prefer that one as well. Yeah, checked. they're totally different.
5: When we were uh, when we were with the producer recently, you pointed out that that this product will get phenomenal with age, whereas Bache and should really be consumed fresh. So um, actually, both of these bottles are from my private collection, and I think these are. I think the These are from 2011, so they are—they wow. do have a decent amount of age on them, which might be why the and Bear has a little bit more of the phenolic funk to it, um, because it should be consumed fresh, but this is really at its prime right now. So yeah. in the, beer, the
2: beer-centric places you've been working, do they have a, a cider component? Is that how you got turned on to it? So yeah.
3: Meridian Pint uh, only does American products, so we... We didn't discover the international stuff there, per se, but uh, we started to explore more and more into American cider, particularly the ciders from Virginia, like Foggy Ridge, um, Albemarle.
1: Well, that's how we got to know Kyle, okay, Kyle because we sold yeah. a ton of his cider and started bringing it in, and then that's how our relationship started. Uh, so we were selling, a, I don't want to say a lot in volume, but a large swath of your products because there's not really much that tastes like it at all. I mean, not much. There isn't anything that tastes like it in Virginia or Maryland or anything. So we wanted to you know, definitely seek out and have relationships with people that are making interesting products like that. Great, man.
2: This is an awesome start. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio.
4: In 1996, l Knife and Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com.
2: Hey hey hey! Welcome back to Beer Sessions oh, no, this Radio is on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special Cider Sessions edition. I'm with Kyle from Millstone, Tim Sam and Cooper from Ancho, kind of the D.C. Maryland scene, and of course with our good friends Gay and Kay from United States of Cider. So uh, we're just finished uh, talking with with Sam, who's worked at some great D.C. beer places like Meridian Pint. And uh, tell us more about how you got into cider. What what point did you really become obsessive and start collecting ciders from? other countries.
5: I think to give credit where it's due, uh, one of our brewer friends in Washington, D.C., Nathan Zinder, he's the brewmaster for Right Proper, which is one of the really true gems of Washington, D.C. He had heard about this product, Basahon. I think he had tried it at some... Here, uh, in New York. In New York somewhere, he had tried it. And so he kept telling us the legend of this cider that we had to try that, you know, he was into funky beer and we were He just kept telling us that we had to try uh, Basahon, Basahon. So, it took us about a year to track it down, and then, then we had it and fell in love. And I think Cooper and I like, immediately booked a trip to uh, Basque Country. We went to Spanish Basque Country as well, but we went to Bordado. And for me, that's when the light really went on um, that we were you know, entering a really awesome industry.
2: So what are some of the highlights of, of Basque Country? If, if, uh, if I, I, mean, I wanted to learn about cider. Is,
5: well, I would say the food
3: is, is uh, probably the best food in the world. So that, that draws you in right away. And then the way it pairs with cider is just kind of, you know, two of the best things you can find. Uh, they don't quite do uh, cider in the way that Asturias, their neighboring uh, region of Spain, does cider in the sense that that cider is like what you drink when you're in Asturias like all the time. So we, we were, uh, when we went there actually we were a bit unfamiliar with, with when you were supposed to drink cider and what, you know, what was the custom in Basque Country. So we were just going out to every bar and ordering cider, and people were like, this, "You're crazy! You're not you're not having cider with food. Uh, you're, you're supposed to drink this earlier on while you're eating pinchos, which are their their form of tapas, which are skewered individual bites, which will be featuring heavily on our menu. But uh, they, the, the way that they in Basque country, you go to the cider house to have a, a large meal and just drink cider all day with whoever you're, you know. Whoever you choose to go there with, or you can go by yourself, and there are tons of people there. You just make friends, and it's kind of a, an awesome, unique thing that you can't find anywhere in the states, and nothing like it, honestly. I mean, anywhere in the world, for that matter.
2: But well, it's cool. Cheers. Cheers. So now, so now we're drinking uh, one of the millstone. Kyle, tell us about this.
6: So this is Cidra Americana. Um, it got its name because I was. Um, we were distributed by Rowan here in New York. And I remember they were going on about Sidra de Nava, which was uh, created by Virtue Side, And they're like, oh, they're not using, you know, uh, Spanish fruit. It's not a real Sidra. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just call mine Sidra Americana. we be happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, and I love the name. I think it's hilarious. Um, it's um, So, it, it is all American fruit. Um fermented um, with apple skins so what we do is we work with our presser um, who peels apple uh, skins for pie makers so we get just a big bin of skins we throw it into our fermentation tank and ferment the cider uh, 100% wild yeast along with the skin so just tons of skin contact doesn't provide a lot of tannin the way grapes do it does more of like this rounded mouthfeel and it allows for whatever reason, we don't even know why, um, but a light acetic quality to develop even in an anaerobic environment, which is why I think a lot of the Spanish ciders, even if they aren't seeing much oxygen, are getting slight acetic qualities. Because a lot of the producers will uh, ferment for a day on the uh, the macerated pumice. So, once again, an, uh, we took an American style um, process, Americanized what the Spanish were doing, um, and Cidra Americana, it is a Funky, lightly acidic, still style cider, um, not much tan to it, um, but definitely some funky, cool undertones, I really like it, and, um, when we were working with the, uh, for the Ancho cask collaboration, we, you know, we talked back and forth, you know, like, what style do you guys really want to see represented here, um, and they had acquired this awesome 660 gallon cask, um. What was, what was in the, the cask prior? Barolo. Barolo. Barolo wine. Um, and they're like, hey, we're not going to be opening for eight months. Do you want to play with the cask? I was like, yes, of course I do. <laughs> I called my girlfriend up and I'm like, hey, I think I'm sleeping with the cask tonight. <laughs> <laughs> You've been replaced. <laughs> but um, so we used a lot of that skin. And that's why it tastes so funky. <laughs> <laughs> so we did a lot of that skin contact fermentation. um, In that blend as well, we also used a lot of our ground harvest apples, which is extremely traditional. Almost all Spanish producers do ground harvest. Um, So it falls from the tree, it hits the ground, it maybe bruises up a little bit, gets a little bit of rot, but that helps kind of provide this cool, funky flavor, deep, earthy qualities, maybe cheesiness. Um, And we did a blend of, I think it was 11 barrels for the final thing, and Blend it all up. It's aging in the cask right now. I was actually bringing a bottle of it for this, but I broke it on the way here, unfortunately. Um, so, Central Americana is slightly indicative. I tried to go for um, a little more earthiness, a little more tannin in what they're producing, um, as well as a little bit of oxidative quality because I like the idea of like a slight sherry influence as well. Just because you know everything's Spain. Let's do something. And eventually, we'll see how it's developing. It's actually developing to the point where I don't think it needs any addition of wood, but maybe some Spanish cedar would be a really cool way to finish it off.
1: So you said uh, these are all American apples and cedar mm-hmm. Americana. Getting back to cedar Americana, mm-hmm. a little bit away from the scale. Um, do you use only apples from Maryland? Do you use from neighboring states? Do you import any
6: apples? So we're,
1: What's your fruit story?
6: So we source yeah. everything within 150 miles um, yeah. for everything we do other than you know bottles and barrels and stuff like that. Um, we mostly work with PA apples um, for the most part. We have our own orchard, which is about three acres. It's all pretty much a defunct um, fruit orchard that hasn't been used in about 20 years. So to fight off all of the bugs and the um, kind of diseases that are in the air, Maryland it's almost impossible to do organic because it's so humid down there. Mm-hmm. So this orchard has been forced to fend for itself. And you go into the supermarket, you see big, beautiful, red, delicious apples. This orchard, now they look like crab apples. They've been forced to gnarled, ugly crab apples. Amazing for cider. They've increased their tannin and acidity to fight off the local bugs. Um, so this is just, it's been part of our kind of like forage product. We're also working with a couple other local orchards. And there's one organic grower in the state that we work with little with uh, called Country Pleasures. And we're actually going to be, we've been making cider for him as well. So he will be another one on the scene making some really cool cider. We pretty much made... Uh, his batches for this year but he'll be making everything from his organic orchard next year and he's obviously following the millstone mindset of funky and weird and off the wall stuff so I think his stuff's gonna be really awesome I'm really excited for what he's gonna be bottling um, and then so and then PA where we get the majority of our apples um, Brown's Orchard and then Peter's Biglerville is like the apple growing mecca of Pennsylvania and Pennsylvania I think is the fourth largest grower and everything is grown in Biglerville so we're lucky to be that close um, because you know you really have to go to those places to find the interesting apple varietals. I remember I tried to get apples from Maryland originally, um, but I called everyone within 150 miles. I, think I called about you know 200 places, and of all of them that got back to me, five had the apples in quantities that I was looking for. So it's still very difficult to find it. We generally have lower tannin apples just because a generally southern apples are generally lower in tannin. Um, also, just not many growers in our areas have high tannin. Though we. have recently accessed um, stuff like Northern Spy um, which is prominent in like our farm gate and our heirloom X but one thing we've been finding with higher tannin is when you're going completely bone dry sometimes that high tannin or that like candied apple caramel flavor doesn't work with the high funk quality so i am actually been despite having access to Northern Spy I'm actually lowering the amount that we're using because it just doesn't work stylistically for what we're trying to make and at the end of the day it's like you know, you go up to, um, you know, Vermont, you talk to Steve Woods, he's like, you know, you, you want high tannin apples, blah, 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 blah. But it doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's about what style do you want to make? And for the style we're trying to make, actually generally lower tannin, high acidity apples work really great for emphasizing that funk. Yeah. So what's in this, in this, uh, variety is Stamen, sap and Jonathan. Um, Stamen has a little bit of tannin, very little, um, has a really nice earthy feel to it. Jonathan, one of my favorite apples that we work with, high acidity, um, really portrays nice funk elements, as does Stamen. Um, really um, just the workhorses in a lot of our products, like Farmgate, any of the earthier, funkier products. And then we have brighter products like Ginger Root, rhuberry, Cobbler, that are generally featuring brighter apples like Gold Rush, um, like York Imperial, um, Cameo, Winter Banana, stuff along those lines that are have really bright fruit characteristics. Um, so. Everything we do is uh, mono varietal, single varietal, fermented, and then we blend after aging. We started as simple as possible, um, literally just fermenting all these different things, and we kind of discovered how these things kind of evolved and changed through the aging process, what each apple did, where it wanted to be placed. And we generally, we were blending seven to eight different apple varietals per cider in the beginning, and now we've, you know, we kind of had a, a you know, light bulb moment um, where we were like, hey, let's just figure out what like with like let's do two to four different apple varietals for any cider we make do it a certain quantity so we'll blend say between 20 and 30 percent uh steven wine sap and farm and that's kind of our metrics now um but past that it's you know it's like finding apple varietals that enhance the other flavors or the style that we're looking for let's
2: ask any of the answer, guys do you want to say anything about flavor profile on the Cedra americana
1: it's interesting because it has a lot of the high acid quality, like the the Spanish cedra, like the Asturian Cider or some Bas Cider would have, but also as you can tell that there's oak oak influence on it, new oak, um, and that's definitely a signature of a lot of the Millstone ciders um, because they're doing all oak fermentation, all smaller barrels. Uh, So you get a lot of oak in it. So it's interesting kind of blending that new oak character with a little bit of an old world uh, style of cider. So I think that's part of what Kyle was talking about before, the Americanization of certain styles of cider and different projects that people are undertaking of putting American influence or twists on old styles, which you see in beer everywhere now, and what sort of American brewers are known for, taking the old and putting the new spin on it.
2: I'm impressed, I can't wait to try out Ancho, so tell us a little bit, I feel like D.C. is kind of like New York, unlike other cities, because it's it's like, scenes are just evolving, the new cider scenes, you got some beer, tell us a little bit about, about the D.C. scene, places that you guys like.
5: Um, I guess I'll start with Wright Proper, which I mentioned already. Right Proper is a brew pub that opened in the, the northern part of the city I think two years ago and um, they're making just really fantastic farmhouse beers. Um, I think Nathan's one of the most talented brewers I've met and they're actually they've had so much success that they're about to open a, a production facility um, with the int- intention of producing only for the district so it's for me I think that's a really cool aspiration to have all the success and get this big brewery and then turn around and have the you know, the intention of just selling within the city. Um, I I think that's a really exciting business model. Um, But that's one of my favorite places. Cooper, do you want to talk about? Um, Where else do we like to go Uh,
3: beverage-wise? Well, I like to drink a Paradiso from time to time. They're always bringing uh, great breweries to the market, uh, do great events. Uh, Also, when while Sam was there, he helped uh, bring in more cider there. So we're seeing lots of... uh, lots of Millstone on draft, which I, I typically go there to enjoy. Meridian Pint, we, we bring on Millstone uh, fairly often as well. So, I mean, I work there, but I like to drink there as well.
2: Uh, what, what, what's, like, the service vibe in the city? I mean, have been to, like, Church Key. I think it's a, you do a lot of the sample sizes. You know, tell us about how, how... Or how you anticipate Ancho serving your ciders, you know, portioning your general vibe about it? Is it just everyone comes and pours their own tap? Is, is it a fine
5: bottle list? I think the, the general public in D.C. is starting to want something that's a little more higher higher brow. I don't mean like linens and, and formal service, but I mean uh, better education and, and more informed service. More serious. Yeah, so the opportunity for places like Churchy or Ancho or... Or wherever else that that want to do events that are based around not just, you know, I remember I'm sure in New York like glass giveaways were a big thing too for a while and like after a while you you started to think you're like it's really funny that people flock to bars to get a free pint glass that costs thirty cents right yeah. and so I'm really excited about the opportunity now to to do events I mean one of Tim's specialties um, is pairing and so one of the things that we're going to do a lot of is having not just pairing events but daily pairings so if you're a neighbor and you come in every day you can experience cider through a a special that's seasonal and meant to be paired with um with what you're drinking which is really to me the best way to drink cider so this this trend that's happening in both the beer world and in dc scene is something that really works really well for for our goal of presenting cider differently
3: another example of an awesome place that we like to drink in dc that i can't believe i forgot about on that question but uh the mockingbird hill it's the the only sherry bar I can think of in this entire country, I don't really know if there are any others, but I, I wasn't really familiar with, with much sherry until I went there, and they sort of do a great job of educating just novices that have never even had a glass of sherry in their life, and they have flights set up, you know, a beginner one to, like, introduce you to some of the, the basic styles that might be more approachable, and then they take you through with a, a they have another flight after that that you kind of get more into the complexity of sherry, and then just—I mean, honestly, I knew nothing, and came out of there feeling like I knew more than most people.
5: I—I I love but sherry, yeah. but I don't think there's anything more obscure than a sherry bar. And yeah. So when we when we saw someone, yeah. cider bar—that sh- was bad. As a sherry bar—it it <laughs> made, made us feel a lot better about you know yeah. pursuing our dream of a cider bar. But sherry bars is working. Uh, yeah, you've inspired me. I want to run out
2: and open a sherry bar right now. <laughs> there's a great one down in DC. Check it out. I, I tell you, yeah. ten years ago, and open this place in New York, I didn't even think they was run for just a beer bar.
5: Yeah, because you know, such, like, you
2: know, cocktails, wine, town. So, hey, um, talk about service, glassware. What kind of
1: glassware are you going to
5: have? I'll let uh, that's Tim's. This is a great so. question because
1: uh, this is all stuff that we're figuring out right now. I mean, even previously talking about how we're going to serve. Uh, these are philosophical questions. That I think we're grappling with, not struggling with, but grappling with right now. Going to Wausau and seeing how they do it was definitely informative and interesting. Um, Glassware is going to depend on the style of cider that you're drinking. Um, I think for most cider we're going to do something like a small white wine glass. Um, I tend to like the way that they look. They're clean. I don't like having a ton of different glasses behind the bar. Having different glasses just for the sake of having a ton of different kinds. Uh, I like the utility of a wine glass. Um... For the Spanish cider, uh, we're gonna have the glassware that's specific to, pardon me, how they serve cider. Um, so it looks like a tall, double fashion glass. Uh, it has a little bit of, uh, it gets a little bit wider towards the top. But they have paper thin walls, uh, and they'll use those to pour. The glass probably holds six or eight ounces, but you only pour about an ounce and a half or two ounces in it at a time. The reason for that is there's very high acidity in their cider. And they're still, without carbonation, pouring them from a height, they generally pour them from five feet, four feet, whatever that is. It gives it a little bit of a carbonation to it, a little bit of a natural prickle, uh, which will dumb down a lot of the acidity uh, and bring out more fruit flavor. So it's not one-note acid. It gives it a more round, uh, fruity flavor. Um, so that's something that we're Talking about, are we going to pour cider from five feet high and make a mess of our floors every day? Are we going to do a once a month type event? Um, I and mean if you go to bars in in Asturias or in Basque country, the way they don't drink draft cider, they drink cider out of a bottle that the bartender pours for you two ounces at a time. There's no such thing as eight ounce glasses because all that that delicate carbonation you get from pouring at a height will go away in a matter of, you know, seconds. So you drink it quickly all, all in one gulp. So these are questions that we're grappling with right now, which is, for me, part of the fun aspect of opening a bar.
2: Yeah. That's great, man. Wow, we're going to cover some cool territory here with Ancho and Millstone on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, this is a special cider session show with Millstone and ONSHO kind of D.C., Maryland scene over here at Jimmy's number 43, and with uh, Gay and Kay from United States of Cider. All right, so we're just talking about how they're going to do service and pours at show at when it opens in D.C. soon. Um, so, but Tim from show, you're also going to be doing some special pairings. Tell us about the program. I know you're working on it, but that's why it's exciting to hear about
1: your thoughts. Um, yeah, so that's something that we're still figuring out. Uh, I know it'll rely heavily on cheese and cider, which I think go very well together. Um, they're both farmhouse products. I mean, when they're done the correct way, they're both farmhouse-type products. Um, the acidity in cider is particularly well-suited for cheese. I mean, I think any serious sommelier that knows really what they're doing around cheese and you'll see this in a lot of books these days is that red wine and cheese don't go very well together you need white wine that's high acid or off dry white wine uh, and cider fits into that mold very well it's often high acid There's some, usually, not usually there's sometimes some sweetness sometimes they're off dry or semi dry uh, and that's great for a pairing with a broad range of cheeses so I think that's something that we're going to feature prominently um, folks have You know, often heard of cider and and pork going well together. Um, Pork is delicious. So I would like to think we're going to try and um, put those together quite often. Our chef is, like many chefs are obsessed with pork and and things like that and cured meats. For good
5: reason. Yeah, yeah. It's probably, yeah. it's probably worth it. We had a great time at Wausau last night, and it's been a while since I've been to a vegetarian restaurant. I actually I really enjoyed the food, but that's maybe a big difference from, between us and them. Being a, being a bath-style restaurant, there will be uh, meat in many forms. We'll be very vegetarian-friendly, but um, there will be a lot of, a lot of meat. For
3: example, our, our pop-up that we're doing on the 27th, there's no vegetarian Yeah, Yeah, we, we weren't question. able to make it. However, we will be catering. <laughs>
2: Vegetarian. So, so the dinner last night with Milson, what were some of the dishes that uh, stood out for
6: you guys and the parents? Uh, the dishes they were so esoteric. I don't think I could remember exactly. Well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you spoke most of the time. yeah,
6: and I still literally spoke most of the time and maybe ate like four bites of food, which was all delicious, but it was you know, I and th- there there are like, there like many hand. ingredients that I can't remember and just mm. I mean I think I think if they if they don't win a Michelin star, then uh, you know. That's a shame because they're doing vegetarian in a really, really cool way and really just going all out with their forage project and everything. So they're kind of kind of taking the art form that a lot of the, uh, the uh, especially in New York, the New York producers are doing with their forage fruit and kind of enhancing that and incorporating it into how they serve their food, which I think is a really cool aspect of LaSalle. Do you
2: guys remember any of the dishes from last oh, night? So we actually uh, were on... Unable
6: to
3: attend the dinner, we we drove up here uh, and couldn't make it in time for the dinner, which took, I believe it started at like 6.30. We didn't get up here until about 7:38. So, But we did uh, eat a meal at the bar just from the regular menu, and
1: it was, what
2: it was did you
3: get? pretty solid. Uh, we, so my favorite dish was the, uh, they had some cauliflower, which I believe was like, was it roasted or grilled? I can't remember.
1: It was roasted cauliflower. Um, there was some black, black garlic had, had in Yeah,
3: black garlic puree and a cauliflower puree underneath it with some baby mosh and some uh, cashews, I believe, and it was really tasty. I'm not much of a vegetarian myself, so uh, I was pretty impressed by how much I enjoyed
1: it. I was impressed how often they were able to bring that umami element in that you normally get from protein... through vegetables, in that case it was like the black garlic, the fermented garlic uh, and just like such like that umami the depth of flavor and I, I was really pleasantly surprised by that, I thought they did a great job and that was a note that I saw throughout all of their dishes, they even had like a simple bar snack, it was like jalapeno potato fritters, tasted like they were like fried in bacon fat, you could have fooled me for sure, um, maybe they were, they were. Really, yeah <laughs> nothing
2: like a good vegetarian dinner where it's cooked in bacon <laughs> I went to a dinner once and it was unbelievable because someone made like you know, one of these things where she kind of like stewed the cauliflower and bacon fat and lard, then pureed it. So it was like this kind of like cauliflower like dip. Sounds that sounds awesome. awesome. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can use it on your menu. <laughs> 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 well, this is fun talking about food and everything. Um, but now we're tasting with Astoria cider. Yeah, this uh, is uh... cider from Ma- Massachusetts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, close
5: by in Asturias. <laughs>
3: this one actually won uh, best. So they have a, an Appalachian thing where they uh, they make cider just from Asturian apples, and, the, and you know they have this whole certification thing on the bottle for all the products in Asturias that abide by that. By just using Asturian apples. Uh, and I think there were, what, 22 Asturian apple varieties? Yeah, it's not
5: just Asturian apples, they have to be native Asturian right. apples. So it's not just grown in the area, but uh, they're are heirloom varietals. And this one
3: this year, it's, it's called Val de Bois, uh, and it, it's from uh, uh which is right on the outskirts of Gijón uh, in uh, Asturias. And that one actually won Best Cider in Asturias uh, this past year at the big the competition there, which I I can't remember the name of the competition. Never. It had,
5: it had one Best Second Asturias the week before we got there, so we were pretty excited to drink a bunch of it, and we actually brought this bottle back with us. Um, but this is a, this is an example of a product that, that really should be poured from height. So we, we poured it out. It's been five minutes, so the flavor profile is not as intended. Um, and one of the interesting things that we caught in both Asturias and Basque Country was that Americans have really grown to love these products while consuming them in a way that the Asturians and Bass would kind of laugh at. Yeah. So allowing, allowing it to sit, it's, it, it gets, I, I think, more acidic and funky, and it's much more akin to like the sour beer movement. If you go over there and you drink the way that they pour, which is you know, from great height, um, it's way more refreshing and cutting and less acidic and less intense. And so they think it's funny that we like this cider this way. And I think, and Ancho, I think one of the things that we'll get to do is, Ha- allow customers to enjoy it either way. You know, I mean, who are we to say that you shouldn't like this if you like this? Um, so then, how,
2: how do they do it in Spain? I mean, do you sit at the bar and literally keep splashing the, the two ounces of You buy pour? a
5: bottle and you put it in front of you, but you're not allowed to pour it yourself. And this isn't an Asturias specifically, but the bartender's job is to pour you one and a half ounces of the cider whenever you look at them. And if you're sitting at a table, they have uh, the servers essentially are the pourers for the floor and
3: they have these, like, portable... Oftentimes they're portable, but not always. Sometimes they're stationary, but these things that kind of resemble, like... It's like a, a urinal, urinal, almost. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and they put the glass down Yeah, into, Say it again at the same time. It's, like, <laughs> a, it's, it's <laughs> like a splash guard, uh, so that, you know... Because even if you're pouring it completely, perfectly, you're you're still getting some splash, like, onto the floor. We're talking about bit. pouring with like, your hand you know, and as high and as low as you can possibly yeah. go. And these guys are pros. They don't miss. They, I mean... They look
5: you right in the eye while they're pouring, just to mess with you, because they know you can't do it, and it's yeah. really
3: frustrating.
2: <laughs>
5: Drink, drinking cider in Guillaume is one of the the best cider experiences you could ever have, just because it's the only place where everybody is drinking cider all the time.
2: And cheers to Asturias, Jackson. We, we, we've hosted some cheers. of the people from Asturias over the years, and with the Rowan Import guys, yeah. this is just their. I know problems. a little bit about it. What I love is that. It, it was explained to me that Asturias is like the one, one part of Spain that was never taken over by the Moors and it's also like Celtic origin mm-hmm. and it's all apples yep. Yep. which we never think of as, as Spain but this this is so different from the Basque ciders you know this one at least also
1: has like a saltiness yeah, yeah definitely yeah, yeah. salinity to it yeah
3: this one it's it's closer to the Spanish Basque ciders than these these French ones these French ones are more like a almost a hybrid of, of sort of Spanish Bass technique and the the more like the, the sweeter, more carbonated French ciders French of like Normandy and Brittany. Yeah, but uh, but it definitely is its own thing. So it's
2: where, where well. else are you guys gonna go to? You're gonna travel far and wide.
5: <laughs> Cooper and I actually went to can... England last month as well. We went to the Royal Bath and West Show, which is the largest cider competition in the world. Um, and so we hung out in Somerset with uh, all the English cider makers and drinkers, and that was awesome. I would really highly recommend it. Kyle, you have to go next year. I oh, will. But uh, <laughs> they, they love American interest in their cider, so you become a celebrity the second you're there. and um, Really fantastic. But additionally, we're also going to do uh, um, upstate New York, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, and Quebec in the near future. Then I'm also going out to Seattle to do a little Pacific Northwest tour, um, and then I'm never going to be able to travel again for the rest of my life. I think <laughs> and we'll open Normandy? on chart. Normandy? not Normandy is on my list. That's going to have to happen after we open, and I, I haven't figured that out yet. That's the I'll one. go for you. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> it's going to
2: have to go. Well, so in England, so were there any ciders that you'll have on your list?
5: Yeah, uh, so England? Tom Oliver, Oliver's Cider and Perry, um, is, I think they call him, do they call him the, the Prince of Perry or the Professor of Perry? I think it's Professor. Professor. Um, so he's, his cider is really incredible. His, uh, his Perry is, is out of this world. Uh, So we'll definitely support him a lot. Additionally, Burrow Hill, um, you see their products infrequently, um, but as far as just like traditional medium English farm cider um, or dry farm cider, their stuff is really unparalleled, I think.
3: And then we we had the pleasure of uh, meeting uh, Martin from Pilton Cider, uh, which is Pilton is right near where they do the Glastonbury Music Festival. It's actually in the town of Pilton, uh, well, on a farm right there. And he does uh, a French-style cived cider that uh, with, with English, English apples, apples, and it's amazing. Uh, uh, hopefully, we'll be selling that. We will be selling that. Yeah.
5: Yeah. yeah, That would be an example of a product that, if we don't have a distributor by the time we open, then we'll probably just direct ship it and bring it in. Yeah,
1: I mean, England has such a strong—it's such a strong center of traditional cider uh, that I think it would be a huge mistake not to, you know, carry a good portion of English. I mean, I think it's important to the story of cider. Uh, like West Country English cider is important to represent Uh, and I think part of our goal is to show the story of cider on our beverage list and I think that's something that's extremely important you know, the French stuff, Brittany and Normandy West Country, England Spanish cider, American cider German cider, if we can actually find any that we can bring over a lot of people forget that Germany actually has a fairly strong cider
5: culture in it, it it doesn't
1: really get brought up at all Um, but hopefully we can change that
5: yeah, New Zealand, too. There's some good ciders from New Zealand. From or Kay, do you guys
4: have any questions for the boys? Well, I kind of touched on your cider program, just,
3: but I know there's something... I'm going to mispronounce it. Choch? cho-ch? Yeah, no, that's right. Cho-ch. choch is right.
5: Cho-ch. Yeah? Choch is the... Yeah, uh, in the cider season in Basque Country or in Asturias, the, uh-huh. the barrels are full January through April, mm-hmm. and so that's the time when you can go to the cider house for the choch, mm-hmm. and it's... Choch is... One, it's the actual pour out of the barrel, so they basically open a tiny faucet that shoots a tiny stream across the the room and everybody runs to catch it with their glass. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also the entire experience. So uh, the cider houses offer a typical meal that starts with uh, like a bacalao or or, um, cod cake and it ends with a a massive bone-in ribeye. Um, So that that idea of the choch or the cider house experience is something that we want to replicate, uh, one, through a festival that we would probably do in the spring to open our patio so we could Spill cider all over the the, uh, yeah. the ground and uh, Chris in the patio, uh, but also something that we might offer uh, more broadly as like a, a prefix menu on any day. If you come in and have the cider house experience um, or the choke experience,
6: so the cider I should just shoot out of barrel continuously. Yeah, so yeah. It's some everybody the... <laughs> else's job to like, catch
3: it and not wine As long as there's wine, and then they'll switch barrels every once in a while to like let you go for a different. Some of them have a slight different flavor profile. You can you can definitely detect a difference between all the different barrels that they'll open the the faucet on, but sometimes they're cheating and and we're not going to go into into who does this, but they actually (laughs) tap kegs and just have a fake little faucet coming out of a a barrel that's sort of a facade for uh, the old tradition, But, uh, but a lot of them still do the real thing, I guess, but we would love to try and try and do something like that but you know so I don't kind know of stand can you actually, stand in the
2: line
5: and just keep catching right. the cider yeah, as yeah. it
3: comes
2: and
5: you, you spill it so it's a bunch of grown adults running around like yeah, idiots you know yeah. lining up to catch you know one and a half ounces of cider and waiting for their favorite barrel to get open and, and it's stuff like a that cider
4: nail, yeah
5: yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> love i love it the way you guys are thinking this is kind of fun
2: it sounds like my kind of place we definitely got to go down there mm. so uh Kyle, we, we popped so here at Jimmy's number 43, we usually have at least one millstone, so we have with the vin de Palm. Yes. It's been here in our, our cold fridge a couple weeks. Awesome. How do you think it's showing? Is this the right temperature or do you like it warmer?
6: Generally, I like all of the cider shots that we do warmer. Um, just like sour beer, like rustic saisons. To get the full expression of what we created, generally you want to serve at least 55 degrees to maybe 65, a little on the warmer side. This is still, I think, a really nice expression of what it is. Um, This is a focus on more Venice-style apple varietals. Um, Two varietals that really stood out. This is definitely really uh, my father's creation more than anything else. You really want to do something in the wine style. So it was um, a blend of Smokehouse and Grimes Golden, aged for about a year on top of the leaves. So it has like this slight champagne quality as well. Um, We also were doing batonage with this. So it's the stirring of the lees. Um, so um, it's done in wine a lot, and it helps create a rounder mouthfeel to the uh, the final product, as well as a bunch of other uh, beneficial uh, qualities to it. And it, it's, I think, it's showing really nicely right now. Good acidity. So the, the,
2: are these lees in the bottle? That's because it was so cold.
6: Oh, there's every because of the minimal filtration. There's always going to be lees. Plus, everything we do is bottle conditioned. So there's, um, you know, dead yeast on the bottom of all of our bottles. So I think it looks pretty. Thanks. <laughs> but. One thing we didn't touch on is that right now Ancho and us, uh, Ancho and Milton are working on, along with um, the cider, what's the guy? Cider guide? guide. Cider Guide are working on setting up a real cider festival in D.C. Excellent. So there's many cider festivals happening across the nation right now, but unfortunately they always seem to be kind of tainted I'll oh, use the word that word um, by some of the macro producers, and it kind of changes the script. Or I think what's trying to be so told about what real cider is, and the the idea of this being we don't bring in, we're trying to say you know what is real cider. I think we're working towards that, but at the end of the day, it might just be all off of taste. Won't we'll be like this is a real cider. This isn't sorry, but finding these. It's the like cider. porn, right? Exactly enough.
1: <laughs> no, when you see it, yeah, or you know, porn or porn. <laughs>
6: <laughs> Um, so I mean just doing something that really kind of changes the script and introduces people to what Real Cider is is something that Ancho is all about we're all about and if we want it to be international just bringing in the coolest producers from all over the world America you know Britain Germany New Zealand wherever Real Cider lives making them a part of the script and really doing it at DC which is you know the hub of all of the melting pot that is America and we think it's a great way of you know introducing this to an international community that's in DC. Okay, it'll work out. So,
2: but where you guys are from? Just tell me where you were born, since DC is so international. Uh,
6: Maryland.
5: Maryland. <laughs> Bridgeport, Connecticut. Right. right down the road from Kyle in Baltimore. Louisville, Kentucky. All right. We got diverse oh. that. what about Kay? Where are you from? I'm
1: from West Virginia. Oh yeah. West by God,
2: Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Kay, where are you? From?
1: Washington State.
2: Wow, look at that. I'm Close. from Massachusetts. City look at apple that.
0: apple growing. But oh,
2: hey, makes, there's always yeah. more to talk about on our Cider Sessions episodes. Thanks to our guests for sharing a taste of the Millstone-Ancho collaboration and other Millstone ciders, and for sharing a bit about everything. Thanks again to and Kay from United States Society for helping me put the show together. I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Bear Distributors. Hope to bring this podcast to you today. Thanks to Kyle from Millstone, Sam, Tim, and Cooper from Ancho for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producers and to our engineer extraordinaire Jack Insley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beer Assassins Radio. All right, woo!
4: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.